You could do anything with your life. What would you like to do? Well, my father told me what it was like before the war. He said every man was free. I want my country back. I pledge allegiance to the flag. here because I want to do the right thing. Take this. What is this? A way out. So that was the trailer for season one of Amazon's uh, Amazon Videos uh, series, the uh, the Man in the High Castle. Now, on my recent uh, vacation, I cracked open the book, The Man in the High Castle, and I found it rather enjoyable. And found that there's been kind of a long saga of trying to turn this classic uh, Philip K. Dick novel into you know into a film. And they are starting a second, they've got a second season of the show coming out. So I've heard it's good, I haven't seen it yet. But I'm just going to break down the book. Because I've already, just from the trailer and stuff, I've already seen stuff that diverges heavily. And I like to stick to the source material, if you will. So, The Man in the High Castle, written by Philip K. Dick. Uh, it was he, he put that out in 1962. And it was his first uh, you know literary success. And he eventually went on to write, well, a lot of stuff that's been made into classic sci-fi movies. Uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep became Blade Runner. Uh, he wrote uh, short stories that became movies like Total Recall, Minority Report, A Scanner Darkly, Paycheck, and The Adjustment Bureau. So if you if you know some of those films, you know that they relate to you know metaphysics and altered states of consciousness, religion, spirituality, philosophy. And they get a little heavy, but uh, especially in film form, they're very, they're kind of fun and cool. And without, without Philip K. Dick, there would not probably have been a, you know, the Matrix. Probably wouldn't have the Matrix, for example. So before we, before we dive into uh, The Man in the High Castle... Take a moment and head over to the GoFundMe page so you can throw me a few dollars because I'm supported by listeners like yourself, right? I thrive off of your contributions and then that encourages me to continue to record and try to tell you stuff you don't already know, okay? 
It seems like a fair deal. Or you head over to the redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash Kyle style design web store, and you can get some of my original artwork on shirts and mugs and prints and all that good stuff. And I get a portion of the proceeds. And I appreciate your patronage, and you get a piece of original, you know, Kyle-style art in your life in some kind of, you know, some kind of satisfying way. And that's actually going to tie into this uh, this episode later on. You'll see. There's an underlying theme with The Man in the High Castle that has been repeated. It's not the first of its kind, a uh, kind of alternate history story. Um, they they, they kind of go back a long ways, this idea of imagining the world in a different way than it is now. And if you know enough about history, you can actually write something that's almost accurate, right? Like in an alternate timeline, if just this one thing had been different, these different people who were still alive at the time might have done this instead of what they did in our timeline. And then a whole different universe just opens up, right? And that's essentially what the man in the high castle is. But the man in the high castle gets a kind of extra meta it's like it's uh kind of has a spiritual aspect to it that it resonates right it's why you know 1962 here we are how many years 40 50 what 55 years later am i doing my math right and it's uh still relevant and unfortunately philip k dick uh he died in uh, 1982 at the age of 53 of a stroke so he didn't see a lot of his works come to the big screen. And, you know, the books are influential, but films reach even further, right? And his ideas and his concepts kind of bled out through these uh, through these films and things. And you remember them, right? You remember Total Recall, right? The, but The Man in the High Castle, his first literary success. So let's, let's stay on track here. Now, the underlying theme, of course, is occupation, right? And this is almost a Visions of the Apocalypse episode, um, but uh, I'm going to get back to that in the future. So, occupation. There's a lot of the United States being occupied by foreign power uh, movies and alternate history kinds of movies. You see the similar thing in, like, even, uh, you know... The Dark Knight Rises, the Batman, the last Batman movie with Bane and everything. And you have this authoritarians kind of take over and turn good people bad by the circumstances. But uh, I did a little digging and I actually got a playlist together of some of these with at least trailers and or at least, uh, you know, in some cases, like the whole movie. You got the man in the high castle. Now, a video series from Amazon. And the first episode, the pilot, the whole thing is available on YouTube. So I got that on there for you. And the, in 1964, this is interesting, two years after The Man in the High Castle came out, uh, there's a British film called It Happened Here. And this was a re-envisioning of World War II where, uh, where the Nazis took over England and characters are collaborating with them and there's intrigue and whatnot i haven't seen this movie but it is kind of a it's almost a cult classic in, in a sense because it was kind of uh, i think it was made by amateurs and whatnot but you have classics like red dawn red dawn 1984 probably one of my favorite movies of all time it's cheesy it's schwazy it's got <laughs> 
was it Leah Leah Thompson, uh, Charlie Sheen, uh, pre-winning Charlie Sheen, obviously. And the Russians, those pesky Russians, take over the U.S. And, you know, uh, plucky young kids have to take up arms and fight World War III against the impending Soviet menace, right? Fantastic. And, you know, they really could make a remake of that movie. Um, They'd need to do it right, though, so it didn't, like, totally suck and just be a complete waste of everybody's time and a franchise. It would be very important, if they want to remake Red Dawn, to not make it a giant piece of shit. I'm just going to put that out there. So, uh, what else? Oh, America. America, with a K, was a... I actually watched this once. It's like a 12-hour miniseries that was made in 1987. A lot of big stars were in it. Uh, Muriel Hemingway, you know, pre-suicide, obviously. And it's it's the story of there being a series of, like, calamities, essentially. Uh, uh, there's an EMP attack on the U.S. The Soviets can take us over. And now it's been like, you know, 20 years of people living under Soviet occupation in the United States. And, you know, it's a TV movie, so the budget's a little eh. But you have those themes. You have collaborators, you have rebels, you have saboteurs, you have people trying to work with this oppressive system to try to make it as best as they can for as many people as they can. And a lot of, you know, kind of moral and ethical, you know, uh, conflicts, but... But this show, it was just sort of strange. It kind of meandered. It didn't It didn't have, like, a real, if I recall, it didn't have, like, a real satisfying climax, you know? Anyways, America. They got some, I got an episode or something, uh, or a trailer in the playlist here. Uh, but the EMP attack thing relates back to Visions of the Apocalypse uh, episode of the Kyle Style podcast. Um, the Power Grid episode. I don't remember what number it is. I don't keep track. Uh... Let's see, 1992, there was a book that was very popular. It was called Fatherland, and this envisioned similar to The Man in the High Castle. And and it it happened here that the Nazis win World War II, and they occupy vast swaths of the earth, and they run their government as, you know, how you would (laughs) presume the Nazis would have run their government, right? Uh, The final solution keeps going forward, and they, you know, defeat the Russians, etc., all of that, all of that stuff plays a role in this alternative history. So, so here's the scenario in *The Man in the High Castle*. You've got Japan, um, be- because of various factors that were just slightly different from our timeline, our real world. Uh, Japan was able to dominate the entire west coast of the United States uh, and parts of uh, South America as well. Because we weren't involved in the war, the Nazis were able to defeat the Russians, and they defeat the British, they take over all of Europe, and big chunks of vast swaths of Russia, they take over vast swaths of Africa, and the Italians are their allies, as they were in real life, the Axis powers, and the Italians also are taking big swaths of Africa. Um, And they take over, the Nazis take the, like, east coast of the United States, down and and to the south, like the southern states up to the east coast. And so the Midwest to the Rockies is still the United States of America, 
right? It's just a fraction of its former self and a, a shell of its former self. And there are people who kind of pine for the days of the United States being whole and, you know, what it was like before they were the we were dominated by foreigners and now we're treated like second class citizens and all of that. And the the Nazis have I, I suppose it's kind of like they kept up their wartime production. And so they have like a much more advanced technology than even the Japanese do. They have like hydrogen bombs. They have rockets there uh, that travel around the earth very, very fast to their destinations for traveling. They also are sending probes and ships out to, you know, uh, the landing people on Venus and Mars and the moon and the asteroid belt. And, and actually the Japanese aren't keeping up with them, which kind of plays a role later on. But this, um, you know, you it, it's it's kind of dark in the sense that the Japanese are essentially treating the West Coast um, like a colony, right? They're kind of colonizing it, but there's you know there's people here, but they they make all the Americans kind of bow down to them, and they treat the Chinese that they've conquered even worse than they treat us. But the a, a big part of the story takes place in San Francisco. And at first in the story, you don't necessarily know that anything is up. It just sort of is like a, it opens with uh, Robert Childan opening his antique shop. And he's just trying to sell some stuff. And, oh, there's some Japanese people come in and he wants to sell to them. And then it kind of evolves where he's, it's not just that they're tourists or something. It's like the whole, his whole business is set up to try to cater to the Japanese because they're powerful and they're wealthy. And he's trying to kind of endear himself to them. So this, uh, so this this alternate timeline idea, like I said, this book gets kind of meta, where you, <laughs> you it makes you chuckle, right? Uh, in the book, The Man in the High Castle, there is a book called The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, and The Grasshopper Lies Heavy is about is a is a is a book in the book that a lot of the characters read and they talk about and they pass it around and the, the Nazis are trying to outlaw it and uh, the Japanese are kind of, eh, you know, like, eh, we're not really having anything to do with it, but we're not trying to outlaw it kind of a thing. And this book is an alternate history of what the world would look like if the Axis had lost World War II. Now, this is like an inversion, right? Like we're in our world reading a book about the opposite of our world and they're in their world reading a book that's the opposite of their world now their universe isn't the same or or the the grasshopper lies heavy its timeline isn't the same as ours uh it resolves world war ii differently than it resolved in the real world like england kind of comes out on top uh, um, on top in in that's in that timeline but it sparks something in the readers that makes them feel patriotic, makes them feel like, you know, this isn't this isn't right, right? Like this world isn't right. Like we should have won, and we should be united, and we should be strong. You know, kind of is a, a promoting revolution, which is why the Nazis want to stop it out. And of course, in our world, there's no real issue with uh, making a book that is. That uh, proposes that we, you know, that maybe we lost the war, right? Like, there's no, there's no attempt to outlaw a book that suggests that maybe, you know, we could have lost because we're not authoritarians, we're not Nazis. Uh, 
Uh, but anyways, rambling. But I actually learned an interesting little factoid. So uh, the grasshopper lies heavy, uh, hinges on a certain key event that happens. Now, in real life, I didn't really know this, uh, a, a, uh, an assassin, there's an assassination attempt on uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, in uh, February of 1933, Giuseppe Zangara. He, try, it's not necessarily clear, I'm not sure who he was trying to shoot, but FDR was there with the mayor of Chicago, and this Giuseppe, there was a crowd standing around listening to them talk. Giuseppe wanted to take a shot at FDR or the mayor, I'm not sure, but he, he's a short guy, and he couldn't see, he couldn't see over the crowd, so he hops up on like a wobbly chair, it's like a wobbly metal chair is kind of how the legend goes, and I like to think it's like a folding chair. And so you got this little guy with a pistol on this wobbly metal folding chair. And he gets some shots off, but he's unstable and he falls down and he accidentally shoots somebody else. And he injures the mayor of Chicago and doesn't hurt FDR. Now, the mayor ends up dying a few days later uh, from, you know, like internal bleeding and whatnot. But uh, they... Uh, they electrocuted old Giuseppe there with uh, old Sparky, the electric chair. <laughs> this was down in Florida, by the way, that this happened. I don't know why the mayor of Chicago was in Florida. This is just the story. So, in in uh, in the man in the high castle, this event caused Roosevelt to. Um, well, no, let's see. In the man in the high castle. He did kill FDR. In The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, FDR wasn't killed, but he decided to do something else. He was like, I'm going to only do two terms instead of like three or three and a half that he actually did in real life. Uh, he says, I'm just going to do two terms like George Washington set the precedent for. And uh, someone else took over and he was kind of better at running the, the war aspect of things. And so the U.S. is successful. Now, before I ramble too far out, okay? This is speculative. So all kinds of various things can happen if you start throwing, you know, possibilities into timelines and everything else. And the the interesting thing is that there was a real event that I wasn't aware of in this book. And that's part of what lends it this legitimacy, right? And when you look at how they talk about what the Nazis are doing, in the world that they now kind of conquered it's it's frightening in a very visceral way like there are jews who have gotten plastic surgery so that they they're not identifiable and they hide inside the the third reich they um they flee to the other areas like there are jews living in the united states because they're and and the the, the nazis try to hunt them down there too and they try to hunt them down in the japanese controlled areas right and it's just a continuation a long-term you know a cat and mouse game that you can't escape from like there is no safe place like the whole world is controlled by these two powers and they're essentially in like a cooperation with one another and you can't escape from prison earth if you're a Jew in this scenario. And uh, our one, our, one of our main characters, uh, Frank, Frank, <laughs> Frank, Frank, 
He uh, he's a Jew, and he is a craftsman. He can make antiques, or he can make uh, you know he makes guns and he can make jewelry and that kind of thing. But uh, he describes what happened in Africa, and he just says that when he thinks about Africa, his blood runs cold. And he describes that just kind of being like a wasteland. It's not real clear what happened in Africa in this timeline, but um, but it's uh, it's it's chilling to think about if you were to scale up the the final solution to the Jews and the not the Nazi racial purity ideas, what it would be like if their the Allies hadn't been able to stop them, right? Like. What would they have done with Africa? And actually looking into this, there was apparently, even during World War I, there was concentration camps where uh, the German uh, uh, colonies uh, imprisoned way too many black people on these islands and kind of let them starve. And it was considered horrific at the time. And it was a kind of proto-concentration camp. So... Uh, Shark Island, I think, was the name of it. I'll try to include some links, but um, yeah. So this 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 stuff is rooted in some history, and it's rooted in some you know some reality. I wasn't able to find anything specific about what the Nazis' plans might have been if they had been able to conquer Africa. Like I don't, I, I wasn't able to find a real like a real plan for that. But uh, let's see, moving moving forward here. Grasshopper lies heavy. Oh, oh, there we go. <laughs> so the grasshopper lies heavy again. The author in the book is Hawthorne Abenson. And he allegedly, because he wrote this book that's politically dangerous, he lives in like an armed bunker in seclusion, paranoid and, and afraid all the time. And he is the man in the high castle. Right? That's where the title of the book comes from. Spoilers. Uh, but, uh, man, moving forward. So, yeah, so that's the scenario, right? You've got Nazi rocket ships, you've got Nazis on Mars, you've got the Japanese dominate us, and, um, and they're, they're big into buying antiques, these Japanese. They, they're fascinated by bits of Americana. They like, you know, movie posters and, uh, you know, trading card, baseball cards, and, uh, and, you know, uh, they're, they're big on the, the Western cowboy revolvers and stuff. And our one of our main characters, uh, Robert Childan, he runs an antique shop where he sells these things to these to hopefully high-end clients, right? These high-end Japanese clients. Unfortunately, one of our other protagonists there, Frank, is making forgeries. They're, they're making fake antiques. And... He describes uh, a Childan has a kind of inner monologue about how everybody in the industry knows that all these antiques are fake, but no one wants to say anything because it will ruin the whole antique economy, right? Ruin the whole market. So everybody's kind of colluding, and even the some of the Japanese are hip to it, but it doesn't matter because people want these, you know, American uh, history trinkets so much that, and they're giving them as gifts to each other and everything. They're all, it's almost like everybody's in on it. And so just nobody says anything. Everything is fine until someone says something and it starts a little trouble. But anyways, so Frank, Frank is, uh, it's interesting because 
there is, due to this uh, cultural dominance from the Japanese onto America, we are, you know, we're not eating beef and, and potatoes anymore. We, you know, we eat, uh, we eat sushi and we eat, you know, seafood and rice and we, we've adapted our diets and, and everything else. And we use the I Ching and... It's interesting, Frank is, uh, he's wondering where his wife is. They've divorced Juliana. Frank is off in the free free USA, uh, being kind of a free spirit. She's kind of stubborn, and she trains judo and all this stuff. She teaches judo. And Frank is wondering, you know, kind of like, where is she and all that. And he casts the I Ching. Now, this is gonna, this is gonna get weird, so... The I Ching is, well, okay, let's back up. What's interesting is he's sitting there thinking, is she consulting the I Ching right now as well? Uh, is Who else is consulting the I Ching right now? And we're, let's see, let's just go to the text. So he asks it, will I ever see Juliana again? That was his wife, or rather his ex-wife. Juliana had divorced him a year ago, and he had not seen her in months. In fact, he did not even know where she lived. Evidently, she had left San Francisco, perhaps even the PSA, that's the Pacific States of America. Either their mutual friends had not heard from her, or they were not telling him. Busily, he maneuvered the Yarrow stalks, his eyes fixed on the tallies. How many times he had asked about Juliana, one question or another. Here came the hexagram, brought forth by the passive chance workings of the vegetable stalks, random and yet rooted in the moment in which he lived, in which his life was bound up with all other lives and particles in the universe. The necessary hexagram picturing in its pattern of broken and unbroken lines the situation. He, Juliana, the factory on Gow Street, the trade missions that ruled the exploration of the planets, the billion chemical heaps in Africa that were now not even corpses, the aspirations of the thousands around him in the shanty warrens of San Francisco, the mad creatures in Berlin with their calm faces and manic plans, all connected in this moment of casting the Yarrow stalks to select the exact wisdom appropriate in a book begun in the 13th century BC, a book created by the sages of China over a period of 5,000 years, winnowed, perfected, that superb cosmology and science, codified before Europe had even learned to do long division. So he's, he's, he's pondering over the, the I Ching, and, you know, it's being you know participating and being one with everything else now meanwhile across town one of our other main characters mr nobusuku tagomi sat consulting the divine fifth book of confucian wisdom the taoist oracle called for centuries the I Ching or book of changes at noon that day he had begun to become apprehensive about his appointment with mr childan which would occur in two more hours so, meanwhile, across town, you've got uh, uh, one of these uh, kind of elite Japanese also consulting the I Ching because you, you want to know, right? You, wanna, you want this oracle uh, divination method to show you something, to give you some wisdom, some guidance. Now, 
the I Ching is, uh, well, let me see. Let me go back to my little factoids here. <clears throat> so again, the I Ching is actually Chinese and it is, is the book of changes. It's several thousand years old. Now, what it is, is you can use Yarrow stocks, like they were saying. I'm not sure how that works, but I've done the, I've cast the I Ching with a, with a coin and you're just counting, uh, you know, uh, heads is one and tails is two. And you flip three times and that forms, you tally that and it forms a line. You do that six times and then you have six lines that make a pattern, a little, a little hexagram. And you then take that and you match it up with, <laughs> with, a, uh, uh, with, the, with the actual book. And then you read the, the, the saying. Right there's uh, there's poetic verses and things that correlate with the hexagram, and you interpret your question that you're asking in terms of what that little bit of that little bit of wisdom and and prose is is telling you. Now, this is interesting because uh, it's sort of like tarot in the sense that. I mean, I don't believe it's actually predicting your future, but what it's doing is it's posing to you a set of ideas. You then put those ideas into something that is a kind of convenient framework for yourself. It kind of helps uh, prime your mind a little bit to think about your, your, your question differently or think about the problem you're facing differently. And it's been around for so long and it's been practiced, you know, that so that it, it, there must be something to it. There must be some, you know, sort of psychological benefit to, uh, you know, uh, engaging in this. So let me give you an example. There is, there's of course an app for the I Ching. And the one I found is just called I Ching. And it's interesting because what you really have is a random number generator that generates the hexagram. It'd be the same if you were flipping a coin or, you know, tossing the Yarrow stalks or whatever it is. And then it compares it to the book. So you basically have a digital version of the book and a digital uh, uh, hexagram generator. So you ask a question and you're basically getting the same thing. I don't consider it cheating. So I asked, <laughs> will Donald Trump destroy the world? It's a question on everybody's minds, right? <laughs> and what it says, it says, dispersion, success, the king approaches his temple, it furthers one to cross the great water, perseverance furthers. The text of this hexagram resembles that of Tsui, gathering together. In the latter, the subject is the bringing together of elements that have been separated as water collects in lakes upon the earth. Here the subject is the dispersing and dissolving of divisive egotism. Dispersion shows the way, so to speak, that leads to gathering together. This explains the similarity of the two texts. Religious forces are needed to overcome the egotism that divides men. The common celebration of the great sacrificial feasts and sacred rites which gave expression simultaneously to the interrelation and social articulation of family and state was the means of employ by the great rulers to unite men. Okay? 
kind of want to repeat that because I think that's important. The common celebration of the great sacrificial feasts and sacred rites, your traditions, which gave expression simultaneously to the interrelation and social articulation of the family and the state, was the means of employ by the great rulers to unite men. Right? Making the state and the, and the family and tradition work together. The sacred music and the splendor of the ceremonies aroused a strong tide of emotion that was shared by all hearts in unison, and that awakened a consciousness of the common origin of all creatures. In this way, disunity was overcome and rigidity dissolved. So we can maybe maybe we can get everybody on board with Make America Great Again? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that means, but let's 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 keep going. A further means to the same end is cooperation in great general undertakings that set a high goal for the will of the people. In the common concentration on this goal, all barriers dissolve, just as when a boat is crossing a great stream, all hands must unite in a joint task. But only a man who is himself free of all selfish ulterior considerations, and who, and who perseveres in justice and steadfastness, is capable of so dissolving the hardness of egotism. Now, again, if you use this as a model for how to think about the problem, if Donald Trump was able to over is able to overcome his ego, even modestly, that will be beneficial to everyone. And if we all, of course, can learn to overcome our own egos, then that will be beneficial to all of us as well. And this is a, a kind of a virtue, right? To not be <laughs> egotistical. Uh, and thus you have unity, and thus you have... You know, you, you have Donald Trump not destroying the world, right? So the it's interesting because I wasn't expecting such a kind of uh, appropriate response from this I Ching app that has nothing to do with the question I asked, right? Like, I'm thinking about the question. Uh, and then the numbers generated from the little the little coin thing makes it... There you go. A little, little bit of wisdom that... Uh, makes you think about the problem differently, right? So, the I Ching. It's just an example. Uh, I suggest you try it out, you know? Just have, have some fun with it. But so, w while these different characters are involved in their own what seem like individual struggles, there is a kind of greater interlocking of everything that's happening, and most of the characters consult or are kind of driven by the I Ching. They're, they're, they consult with it, it helps, it influences their decisions and everything. And this gets to, uh, to the core of the entire story. And that is that, uh, well, Juliana Frink meets up with uh, an Italian ex-soldier named Joe Sinadella. And he wants to go meet the author of The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. He convinces her to go with him. There is intrigue. Uh, spoilers, they eventually do meet him, and he's no longer in his bunker. He is no longer the man in the high castle. He has accepted his fate that if they come for him, they will come for him. And Juliana 
pressures him to tell tell her, you know, how did you come up with this book? How did you come up with this book that seems more accurate and more like what real life should be than our than our real lives are? And it's sort of revealed, spoilers, that the I Ching, he, he used the I Ching to write the book, okay? So in the same sense that I asked a question about Donald Trump and it told me about kings and social cohesion and uh, the wisdom that we need to overcome disunity, which is way too appropriate a response to that question, he was writing the book with the characters making the, their decisions based on the the I Ching. He, he wrote the book based on this randomly generated, chaotic kind of, uh, you know, a, a collection of wisdom. And, uh, and the result was essentially that it's sort of like both are true at the same time. The grasshopper lies heavy is true while... Uh, the man in the high castle is true while our world is true. And it's because it all is representative of all of these different decisions that everybody makes all the time, constantly forking off into all these different dimensions where, in fact, everything is kind of true. Now, it gets a little, you know, it's a little, what the bleep do we know? But um, I dig it, right? I'm, I'm digging it. I'm with it. Now... There's another aspect to this that, you know, um, I'll draw this thing down here. So this show that Amazon's making, um, I, again, I haven't seen the first episode even. I, I suppose I should watch it because I hope that they don't just totally fuck it up, you know. But uh, it's, it doesn't look quite right. It's it's not structured the same at all. It would be very difficult to I think you could squeeze maybe a two hour movie out of The Man in the High Castle but what they're doing is something different. They're doing resistance fighters uh, there isn't a book The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. There's like a film and there's like film reels that show our world's version of World War II and it's you know inspiring people and everything and the Nazis are trying to hunt it down and I imagine it's going to be more sexy. This book was a little sexy, actually. It's a little, little sexy from, you know, time to time. But um, it's not going to follow that same, you know, pattern. And I, I, I want them to go into dangerous waters, but I don't think they will. And what I mean is, I'm not quite sure what kind of... <laughs> I'm not quite sure what the lesson is here, but given that the Japanese are dominating the, you know, once proud and free Americans, uh, there this leads to some conflicts. Now, uh, Robert Childan goes to a young Japanese couple's house, and it's it's kind of uh, it's it's significant that they invited him to come to their house and have dinner. Uh, you know, he goes to their apartments and he's like the only white guy, like for miles, you know, and everybody's looking at him kind of funny. Like, why, why is this, you know, guy down here? And so he, he sits down and he's trying to, he admires the Japanese, you know, like they defeated us. They're better than we are. We, 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 we should try to imitate them and, and, you know, copy what they do and learn from them. And then he's sitting you know, they, they're actually discussing the grasshopper lies heavy. 
and he he finds himself kind of underwhelmed by their like like their sense of taste and their attitude towards him he says i did it again robert childan informed himself impossible to avoid the topic because it's everywhere in a book i happen to pick up or a record collection in those in these bone napkin rings loot piled up by the conquerors pillage from my people face facts i'm trying to pretend that these japanese these japanese and i are alike but observe even when i burst out as to my gratification that they won the war that my nation lost there's still no common ground what words mean to me is sharp contrast vis-a-vis them their brains are different souls likewise witness them drinking from english bone china cups eating with u.s silver listening to negro style of music it's all on the surface advantage of wealth and power makes this available to them but it's ersatz as the day is long even the I Ching, which they've forced down our throats it's chinese borrowed from way back when whom are they fooling themselves pilfer customs right and left wear eat talk walk as for instance consuming with gusto baked potatoes served with sour cream and chives old-fashioned american dish added to their hall but nobody's fooled i can tell you me least of all only the white races endowed with creativity he reflected and yet i blood member of the same must bump head to floor for these two think how it would have been had we won would have crushed them out of existence no japan today and the usa gleaming great soul power in entire wide world now it's interesting because you could just sort of see it on the surface as this kind of racist invective that he goes on, that he, he just kind of launches into this kind of tirade and internally that he's like, suddenly feels revulsion to these people. But take it and flip it around. Didn't we go and culturally poke and prod at the, you know, like, oh, the exotic Japanese that we conquered and nuked and, you know, oh, geisha girls and chopsticks and, you know, and, and you know uh, karate and and all that all the japanese stuff samurai swords and everything we went and conquered them and in you know kind of an imperialist fashion there's almost no way to, for it to not happen in some sense but taking the food uh, kind of ogling their women forcing them into you know a secondary role in their own society because they've been defeated what he's feeling is what conquered Japanese must have felt in the years after World War Two, right? Like, at least some of them would have felt this way. Like, we're better than you. How did you beat us? Like, you're, you're, you're foolish people. You're, I don't like you. <laughs> right? And... Even a lot of the, the, the American characters consider themselves uncultured barbarians next to the Japanese who seem very, you know, articulate and meticulous and uh, analytical, and very, you know, very, very ordered. The Americans are 
lackluster and sloppy, right? And the Japanese treat them that way, and they feel that way. But this relates to, a little, a little later on here, Frank Frink went into business with a friend making, you know, original new American jewelry, right? And this jewelry was unique, uh, you know, kind of neat. You know, it was new, it was artisan, uh, it was sort of like individual bits of jewelry artwork, right? And they're trying to sell them, and they're trying to, you know, make a market for these to the Japanese. And the Japanese don't understand it, because it doesn't follow a, an established aesthetic. It is new, a new kind of original form of art. So they, they don't like it, but they don't dislike it either. They're like confused by it. They don't know what to think about these weird, you know, non-traditional things, right? So they're fascinated by them. And essentially, the the Asian man that uh, Childan had gone to have dinner with comes to him and is like, you know, hey, I got this idea. We'll we'll take this this jewelry and we'll make it into molds and we'll sell, you know, cheap uh, cheap reproductions as far and as wide as we can because people will they'll be compelled by these things and they'll buy it and we'll make tons of money. So. When he's posed with this business proposition, he realizes that he's like, I and I'm helpless. There's no avenging this. We are defeated, and our defeats are like this. So tenuous, so delicate, that we are hardly able to perceive them. In fact, we have to rise a notch in our evolution to know whatever happened. So he considers just throwing this piece of jewelry into the garbage, right? Just get rid of it. He says, or he thinks, could I do it? Toss it away? End the situation before Paul's eyes? Can't even toss it away, he discovered as he gripped the piece. Must not, if you anticipate facing your Japanese fellow man again. Damn them. I can't free myself of their influence. Can't give in to impulse. All spontaneity crushed. Paul scrutinized him, needing to say nothing. The man's very presence enough. Got my conscience snared has run an invisible string from this blob in my hands, the jewelry, up my arm to my soul. Guess I've lived around them too long. Too late now to flee, to get back among whites and white ways. Robert Childan said, Paul? Yes, Robert? Paul? I am humiliated. The room reeled. Why so, Robert? Tons of concern, but detached, above involvement. Paul, one moment. He fingered the bit of jewelry. It had become slimy with sweat. I am proud of this work. There can be no consideration of trashy good luck charms. I reject. Once more, he could not make out the young Japanese man's reaction, only the listening ear, the mere awareness. Thank you, however. Paul bowed. Robert Childan bowed. The men who made this, Childan said are American proud artists, myself included, to suggest trashy good luck charms, therefore insults us, and I ask for apology. Incredible, prolonged silence. Paul surveyed him, one eyebrow lifted slightly, and his thin lip twitched a smile. I demand, Childan said. That was all. He could carry it no further. He now merely waited. 
Nothing occurred. Please, he thought, help me. Paul said, forgive my arrogant imposition. He held out his hand. All right, Robert Childan said, and they shook hands. Calmness descended in Childan's heart. So, it was a sort of point of pride, right? Um, he, he sort of stood up for their, their original, call it American if you want, uh, artwork, and didn't sort of like sell out to, to this, uh, the, the Japanese overlord, right? And it seems as though that sort of, that, that, that Japanese man got it because they bowed and they shook hands. They, they met as equals and the relationship changed, right? It wasn't just, I want to take these things and sell them and you're going to kind of go into business with me and you don't really have a choice to, yes, I do have a choice. And that relationship then changed. And that is also part of that kind of cultural diffusion that happens when you have uh, imperialism, conquest, and uh, occupation, right? So that goes back to the whole initial theme that you, you have this captive population, but it's not all one way, right? Unless you're eradicating them like the Nazis were doing. If you're trying to cohabitate with them, it bleeds back and forth, and you have cultural exchange, and you eventually become more like each other rather than, you know, more different from each other, right? So that's just interesting way to think about it. Now, it's not just Childan who has this <laughs> racist streak. It's, it's, it's like, fascinating. Uh, Mr. Togomi, who is a, a sort of very serious uh, 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 I Ching casting Japanese businessman, he is contemplating his own piece of their jewelry. He's He, too, is puzzled by this little piece of jewelry. And he is sitting on a park bench staring at it and something strange happens. It's sort of like, uh, I almost imagine like a, a, a flash of light, so to speak. And then it says, you know, the light disappeared. He held the dull silver triangle only. Shadow had cut off the sun. Mr. Togomi glanced up. Tall, blue-suited policeman standing by his bench smiling. Eh? Mr. Togomi said, startled. I was just watching you work that puzzle, the policeman started on, started on, on along the path. Puzzle, Mr. Togomi echoed. Not a puzzle. It was kind of a geometric uh, silver uh, little, you know, you, you, you could say it looked like a puzzle. Anyway, uh, isn't that one of those little puzzles you have to take apart? My kid has a whole lot of them. Some are hard, the policeman passed on. Mr. Togomi thought, spoiled. My chance at Nirvana gone, interrupted by that white barbarian Neanderthal yank. That subhuman supposing I worked a child's puerile toy. Rising from the bench, he took a few steps unsteadily. Must calm down. Dreadful, low-class, jingoistic, racist invectives. Unworthy of me. Incredible, unredemptive passions clashing in my breast. He made his way through the park. Keep moving, he told himself. Catharsis in motion. And this is what's 
interesting is... So he stopped, gaped at a hideous misshapen thing on the skyline. Like a nightmare of roller coaster suspended, blotting out the view. Enormous construction of metal and cement in the air. Mr. Tagomi turned to a passerby, a thin man in a rumpled suit. What is that, he demanded, pointing. The man grinned. Awful, ain't it? That's the Embercadero Freeway. Embercadero Freeway. A lot of people think it stinks up the view. I never saw it before, Mr. Togomi said. You're lucky, the man said. A mad dream, Mr. Togomi thought. Must wake up. Where are the pedicabs today? He began to walk faster. The whole vista was dull, smoky, tomb-world cast. Smell of burning, dim gray buildings, sidewalk, peculiar harsh tempo in people, and still no pedicabs. Cab, he shouted as he hurried along. Only cars and buses, cars like brutal big crushers, all unfamiliar in shape. He avoided seeing them. He kept his eyes straight ahead. Distortion of my optic perception of particularly sinister nature. A disturbance affecting my sense of space. Horizon twisted out of line, like lethal astigmatism striking without warning. So he, uh, so he heads into a lunch counter, right? He pushed open the wooden swinging doors. The smell of coffee. Grotesque jukebox in the corner blaring out. He winced and made his way to the counter. All the stools taken by whites. Mr. Tagomi exclaimed. Several whites looked up, but none departed their places. None yielded their stools to him. They merely resumed supping. I insist, Mr. Tagomi said loudly to the first white. He shouted in the man's ear. The man put down his coffee mug and said, Watch it, Tojo. Mr. Tagomi looked at the other whites, all watched with hostile expressions, and none stirred. So he flees. And he goes back to the bench. And he finds the he finds the little piece of jewelry he had left on the bench. And then things go back to normal. So it's like he in contemplating this little unique little piece of art uh made by made with a means and a intention that is mysterious to him as a Japanese man, sort of it, it caused him to have a vision or be transported to call it our world, right? To the world of the grasshopper lies heavy, maybe. And then in that world, you see the, the whites aren't bowing down to him. Everything looks all different. He sees the world as a different place, and that goes back again to the idea that the I Ching wrote The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. It's a reflection of reality. It's actually as real as this world is, or as real as the world of the man in the high castle is. I don't know how true that is, but it's fun. It's fun to think about anyway. And this is, becomes a learning experience for that character. And he goes on and has some more uh, little adventures. <clears throat> Anyways. You now have, but this is what I'm talking about with this show. I, I try to watch the show. If it's just crap, I, I'm not going to deal with it. But the there's a pace and a tone and a, a vibe to this book. The intrigue and the uh, even the violence is subtle. Like, you almost don't realize that some violence just happened. Uh, because of how it's written, and it's written from the character's perspective, so it's like, confusing and fast, and you don't know, you don't understand how the characters are going to react to things. 
and there is an immense level of intrigue happening where what seems like just simple meetings between people become these very large conflicts, and there's a lot of intrigue. And uh, Tagomi is meeting with a, a Mr. Haynes, who is coming from the Third Reich from Europe, to meet with him to talk about plastic molds for machines. And that becomes mired in the Third Reich's Operation Dandelion. And Operation Dandelion is kind of the... It's kind of one of the driving factors in the entire book. Things started in motion by other people who aren't even characters in the story, really, drives the actions of all these different characters. And everybody's forced to make hard decisions, fast decisions, uh, sometimes violent decisions, and they don't enjoy it. It's like most of these characters are not enjoying their existence. They're being drugged along by the universe and sometimes going with the flow of the universe and making the right choices in the face of adversity and whatnot. So I hope that the show can encapsulate just a just a piece of that, you know, just a just the the vibe of that, the the I Ching and everything else. And some of the little promo stuff looked kind of neat. It kind of touched it was sort of felt sort of felt right but i have a feeling it's going to be a lot more shooting nazis and making bombs and you know kind of um patriotic fervor i mean i I hope it's not that cheesy but i guess i'll have to find out i guess i invite you to do that with me i'm gonna try to start that soon you should try to start that soon you got two seasons of of it to watch now you know you get caught up so buy art. So go over to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash Kyle style design. Buy some original Kyle style art. You know, it's just it's a thing and you'll have it. You, you don't you don't know what it's like until you're actually holding it. You're actually looking at it in person and it will like have an effect on you because that's what art does. And, you know, I get a portion of the proceeds, which, of course, keeps me talking to you, telling you neat stories and things and neat factoids about people trying to assassinate uh, FDR. Right. Or head over to the GoFundMe page, throw me a couple of dollars, because, uh, you know, I just use a couple bucks, and uh, it all helps to uh, keep keep me fed, you know? And I appreciate you uh, tuning back into the Kyle Style Podcast. Uh, check me out on uh, Instagram, that's Kyle underscore style underscore podcast. I'm on Twitter, it's at KStylePodcast. I'm on Google Play, SoundCloud, iTunes, I'm um, Still telling you to go download Podcast Addict. I think it's the best way to, to listen to podcasts. And, yeah. Uh, the Man in the High Castle. Now a high budget. Uh, looks kind of like a high quality motion picture series. There's various other films in my little playlist that I put together for you. And, yeah. Do some I Ching. You know, cast the I Ching to decide whether or not you should watch the Man in the High Castle, or read the book. How about that? There's a challenge for you. Just download the app, cast the I Ching, see what the I Ching says. Right? We'll leave it up to you. Getting meta now. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.